Welcome to Lead with Less, the podcast for confident professionals with me, your host, Tash Peterson, Certified Leadership and Mindset Coach. This is the podcast for confident professionals that will help you move through overwhelm, burnout and self-doubt by sharing actionable strategies and practical steps that can have an immediate impact for you. With a mix of solo and guest episodes, I will share everything I've learned and applied over the last decade that has enabled me to create an extremely successful HR career and since then a profitable and thriving coaching business, all while blending it with everyday life and motherhood. I've also coached and empowered over 150 clients through one-on-one coaching and group programs to transform their lives and careers using these strategies. They now confidently thrive as their best selves and now I want you to have access to all of the goods too. This is the perfect spot if you're new to your career, a seasoned professional or aspiring into a people leadership role and want to lead with less so you can live and work with more confidence, clarity and energy. Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Lead With Less with the incredible Kate Billing from Blacksmith. Kate is exceptional. She is a leadership trainer and facilitator and coach and also specifically talks a lot about the power of self-talk. And she's also now doing a lot of work in the midpoint life for women around perimenopause, menopause, and postmenopause, which is such needed work. But in this episode, we talk all about harnessing your self-talk for success. And this is an incredibly important topic as I talk about all things mindset. Kate takes that to a different level and talks about it in different ways around self-talk. So I'm really excited to bring this episode to you to introduce the incredible Kate. Kate Billing is one of the New Zealand's leading voices on gender, age, equity, and leadership development. Her work focuses on growing leadership capacity to meet the challenges and opportunities of the new reality of life and work. For over 25 years, Kate has worked in the people, culture, and leadership space, building a reputation for sharp insights, compassionate challenge, warmth, and energy. Her work integrates leadership development, personal development, and leadership well-being, drawing on both timeless and leading-edge thinking from the fields of psychology, neuroscience, chronobiology, anthropology, and philosophy, combined with a healthy dose of lived experience. Kate's fully human approach to development enables leaders to become the people they need to and want to be individually and collectively, people who are examples of what's possible when we commit to deep levels of authenticity, humanity, and responsibility in the ways that we live, lead, and work. And as mentioned, Kate has also recently released her six-month leadership development program called Turning Point for those in embracing the midlife power of themselves so there is a link in the show notes to check out turning point if this is you or you want to share it with someone in your life who you think would benefit from working with Kate in this way I can honestly attest that Kate is exceptional so I'm really hoping that you enjoy this episode we actually end up talking about a lot of different aspects of life work the self in this episode. So even though we are predominantly talking about self-talk, we actually also connect so much of life and ourselves to self-talk and how that interlinks and connects everything together. So as always, I hope you enjoy the episode. Let us know how you find it and let's jump on in. 
Hello, hello, Kate. It's so amazing to have you here on the Lead With Less podcast. Oh, it's great to finally be able to sit down and have a chat with you. We've been trying to do this in one way or another since before COVID, I think. I was looking yes. back through my emails and I was like, oh, we must get together and talk about blah. So <laughs> yeah. here we are three and a half years later. Exactly. And even just in the last couple of months, there's been rescheduling with sickness and, and all of that stuff uh, with you know, life of parenting. So I'm glad that we're finally here. We made it and we can finally do this conversation. <laughs> so I'm really excited to talk with you. There's a couple of big things that you're very known for in terms of, you know, known for in New Zealand, but I would say we're getting globally with you. I think you're really, you're really stretching, which is amazing. Um, but there's a couple of topics of conversation and around, you know, self-talk, the way that we talk to ourselves. And then also the other point of conversation around, um, pre-menopause, perimenopause, and that chapter of life for women, uh, which I'm going to bring you back next year to talk about, because that's a whole episode in and of itself. But today I really wanted to focus on self-talk and your journey with that and the work that you do with that. Because I know that it's such a big part of what my clients go through, what my listeners will be going through and what they'll be experiencing. So I know that this will be really valuable for them. So before we kick off and, and dive into that, could you please share your journey with us? What brought you to this point in your career and how does self-talk or how has self-talk played a part in your journey? Sure thing. Well, the older you get, the longer that story could become. It's a tricky bit. So it's like, hmm, where do we start? Uh, I mean, if, if I start at the beginning, I think one of one of the ways that I describe myself is, is being human obsessed. And I am an obsessed, not too strong a word, to be, to be frank. And I think that, that my experience is that that, that preoccupation really this curiosity, deep curiosity, desire to learn, to find more, to self-experiment, et cetera, about what it is to be human and, and why things go wrong and how things can go better. It started when I was a kid. I, I thought it was about 10, but a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with my dad and he said, no, no, I reckon it was earlier. I think you were about seven. The first time you said you wanted to be a doctor. And, you know, by 10, it had become a pathologist. You wanted to know about disease and that kind of thing. You know, I mean, thankfully for me, I, I didn't end up down that track. That's part of the story really that ties in with the self-talk is about being um, very driven and being a high achiever as, as a kid, as a teenager in all areas of life, culture, sport, academically. And um, to be honest, burning myself to a crisp by the time I was 19 down at Otago. And then spending, I think the bulk of my 20s, what I'd call, I call that my lost in the long grass period is where I was actually on the outside doing a really good job, doing what everybody, you know, expected and going overseas and building a career and that kind of thing. But uh, internally, I was in a, an abusive relationship with myself, mm. I think is the way to describe it, because of this meltdown that happened at 19 about, like, I'm not going to be a doctor. And... You know, since I was a child, that had been this identity that I'd been living into, that I'd been rewarded for being smart. The stories that were told was that was what was going to happen and that's who I was going to be. I hadn't imagined any other future. And and then I left university in the middle of my second year because I became so physically unwell because of my mental health, um, you know, that I, I couldn't complete. And I just, you know, my parents said, it's okay, take a break. 
come home, come home and be our receptionist in our law firm, you know. So I think part of part of my journey to this point, both personally and professionally, and kind of how I get to the self-talk place is it has been a hard, my relationship with myself has been a, not always an easy one. Um, sometimes a, a very, very difficult one and one which has done me harm. But ultimately, because of what I've learned, this obsession with being human and wanting to know how the mind works and wanting to understand how to be better with my body and observing other people through my work in recruitment and then HR and now in leadership, of seeing every human being going through the same struggles, you know, this common humanity piece, um, because I think there is often a temptation to think it's only you. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've had I've had um, twenty seven years now in the people culture leadership space. Uh, coming up, where are we? Sixteen or something? Fifteen in in blacksmith doing leadership development and human centered leadership specifically, which really puts this at the centre. Uh, but over the last you know six or seven years, really looking, feeling my way into the courage to integrate this lived experience stuff that I spend all my time (laughs) researching and thinking about and playing with outside work together with my leadership development work and tune in one of the self-talk workshop was the first experiment with that and there have been a number since so yeah that's how I find myself here there's a lot there are a lot more stories uh, along the path but I, I think of myself as a human obsessed leadership pragmatist I love that be the way I would describe it yeah, it's got to be practical, got to be applicable to everyday life immediately for people to create, you know, shift. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I, when you talked about your relationship with yourself, especially being in an abusive relationship with yourself, I could connect to that instantly, absolutely instantly, of being valued in terms of your intelligence and what you deliver and what you do, and then feeling like you can't achieve that or you're needing to take a break from that. See, I really resonated with what you said around the self-abusive aspect of being in an abusive relationship with yourself. Like, I would say that that was my whole 20s as well. <laughs> yeah. And we don't actually know, like, I, I wouldn't say that would be the first identification we would use, right? Like, that our self-talk is so negative that actually we're in a self-abusive relationship with ourselves. We hear about that in external relationships with other people. So... I think that actually segues nicely to our to my my first question for you really is what is self-talk? Like what is it? How does it play, you know, how does it play a role in our life? Why is it important that we pay attention to it, that we direct it? Yeah. So, I mean, if you have the capacity for language, like if you can listen to a language, process it cognitively in terms of understanding what it is and you can make words and speak and all the rest of it. You have self-talk. You know, one would argue, I mean, I suppose, Helen Keller, blind, deaf, mute, did she have self-talk? Would seem so. So you kind of wonder where is this functioning? It's as long as there's the the ability of the brain to create and, and a language, you, you have it. So it evolves at the same time as everything else does in brain development with with children right along with this sense of self this identity you know of um going through still even 
when I'm out in the world for about the first six months feeling like even though I don't have language and it's crazy to talk about the experience of babies pre-language with language and it's all we've got <laughs> as people who do have it is even during that you know that first six months when they're still very much you know bub and mum are the same being in, in almost all of the ways apart from the physically you know, they're still connected in all sorts of ways, energetically, etc. We have this attachment drive, right? So even before we've got language, we have this need to be connected, to be safe, secure, etc. So there's a wonderful book by um, Jill Bolte Taylor, who is a neuroanatomist who suffered a series of strokes in her early thirties. She did a TED talk on it decades ago about her experience of going back as part of the center of one of the parts of her brain that were affected by this series of strokes was the language center um, along with the piece of her brain which is responsible for the experience of her body in space. And so she went from having language everything back to this experience that one would have of being a newborn baby basically with those parts of the brain knocked out. And she had to go through nine years of gestalt therapy and language therapy, et cetera, to get back language, to get back those senses and sensations. You know, she talked about even before she had language, there being an experience of self, there being an experience of others and there being this conversation, even though there aren't words around it, about this relationship, this energetic, this felt relationship. So, you know, if we peel it right back, yes, it's easy to say self-talk in that therefore we assume it's about this internal conversation that we have thoughts. But actually there are lots and lots of layers to this. There's the conversation with our bodies in terms of if we dial right into what we're experiencing as a physical self, there's this relationship in this felt conversation from the physical body. But where most people start with is, is it's the chatter. It's the complete thoughts, what um, called the researchers at Queen's University in Ontario a couple of years ago, that's, this is the latest research we have on thoughts and therefore self-talk. They were looking at researching where do thoughts begin and end, you know, because when you look at trying to study this stuff, because I'm big on evidence-based, science-backed stuff, and until they had done that research, when we looked at, well, how many thoughts is a person having a day? You know, the, the challenge with that from a scientific method perspective is what is a thought mm. and how do you measure it? You know, two, two things critical to, to running a successful experiment. And so the range was, was anywhere between 40,000 and 80,000 total thoughts per day. And those thoughts can come in two forms. There's continuous and contiguous thoughts. So continuous is just kind of this rapid fire people talk about this a lot when we're in the workshop and i get them to do just 60 seconds with their own mind it's like be that to be david attenborough or a national geographic photographer and observe your own mind for 60 seconds like don't do anything crazy and breathe weird or whatever just <laughs> like notice in this moment what's happening and sometimes people will talk about this continuous nature of thought which is thoughts are constantly arriving arising in our conscious awareness and they're not necessarily complete sentences like I'm talking now and I think mm -hmm. people think that's what self-talk is it's like these statements that's more the contiguous version mm. right? but otherwise it can be 
they're almost like these teeny weeny little rapid fire bits of can be sight, sound, memory, words, feeling, you know, there's all these things that are just arising, which is where you can get to this 40 to 80,000. The, the Queen's um, University uh, folks arrived at an uh, unknown average number of 6,200 what they call thought worms, which describes the sort of thing that we think of as self-talk, like the statement, I'm, I'm not enough. Right. So they oh, were I'm looking, not as good as that person. Or I'm or... not as good as that person. Or mm. I said something to her, why did I say that in the meeting? You know, oh God, I'm so dumb. You know, that's that's like a beginning and an end, so we can measure it. So they reckon the estimate is the average person has about six thousand two hundred of those a day, and that's just during waking time. So when we think about self-talk, it's it is this really like a spring, the way I think about it is like a spring in the forest. The, the picture is lovelier than the actual experience. One of those beautiful hyper, hyper-coloured photos of a rainforest or something. And there's a, a spring pool with a waterfall, little, little, you know, waterfall coming out the edge of it. And water is just coming up from the ground into the pool, constantly filling it up. And that's really what, what our self-talk is like. It's just those thoughts constantly arising. When we're younger, um, you know, we have a very limited vocabulary. We have um, limited experience of the world. And therefore, you know, some of the language that we're, like we're programming the operating system of our mind, basically, you know, like the brain's the hardware and the mind's the, the operating system with the software programs overlaid on it. And so the programming can be a little bit buggy. Mm. You know, you've got code written by a five-year-old running in a 54 year old's body Mm. you know it's like and and then through life we create experiences and interpret experiences that then reinforce those stories and it's you know it's all coming from this attachment security connection do i belong you know am i the security needs that we have around safety connection and self-esteem um, we're seeking to get those needs met all the time and we're looking consciously and unconsciously, mainly unconsciously, for anything that might mean those things are not true and security is at risk, which is why most of our self-talk tends to be negative. The complexity that's added on top of that is we're also being programmed by the people around us by, you know, and this is what, you know, you're saying like we're in, we're interpreting experiences which is we're seeing experiences as told or as explained or felt by the people around us right you know for this first because i think that the the science is interesting around is it, is it the first eight years or is it the first 10 years or the first 12 years where the mindset's being developed but so much of that you know so much of our self-talk is also developed from what are my parents saying what are my family saying what are the teachers that i'm spending time with saying you know and we don't have the ability to fully critically think at five years old we don't have the full ability to question whether that is true or not true or is that what i want to believe or is it not and so it can be buggy because we don't know what we want to believe yet we're just taking what we see you know, as it is, absolutely. you know, we're like sponging and I'm seeing that with Jake, like, I'm just like, and because I know so much about the mindset, I'm like, 
oh, did I just like say a fixed mind statement? Like, oh, a fixed mindset statement. Like, is that going to be programmed into his brain? Oh, I better like, you know, and which isn't healthy either. But um, yeah, like it's just, yeah, like how much of our self-talk is just so directed by things that actually at that age we have no ability to control or yeah. change. Yeah. And look, I hear this from the sort of thing you're saying there about your impact on Jake as, as a mother and being, you know, one of the dominant humans in his space. Um and your desire as a parent to want nothing more for him than joy, happiness, success, et cetera. You know, everything you do as a parent is is around that for your child. I often hear this from people and when we're in workshops and, and they're going through this and going, oh, no wonder I'm so screwed up. And what am I doing to my child? And it's like, well, this is just part of being human, right? What you're doing, hopefully, is you're raising a human who at some point will seek out the support and tools to work it out. You can't stop this happening. You can't stop life. This comes <laughs> with the territory, right? One of my big things, that I, you know, the big thing for me, one of the big things for me in this work is to have people know they're not crazy or at least no crazier than everyone else, right? We're all weird. We all have this thinking. I, Where I always start with people is start with, what I call the thought machine so like how does in terms of the mind as it relates to this particular thing and its relationship with the the neural network you know the the realities of neuroanatomy and the way the brain is structured and neurochemical cocktails that get released in threat responses and what your security needs are like the more people can understand the common human context that means we have this as a part of our experience that creates an enormous amount of space for mm. them on like, I'm not broken and I'm not the only one. This is just part of being human. Okay. So that in instantly there's a bit of peace that comes yeah, there's like that. the compassion and the non-judgment of like, Oh, I'm not intentionally trying to ruin myself in my life. <laughs> yeah. like there's, there is an aspect of this is programming that's happening. Because what they, what do they say? Like 90 to 95% of how we live every day is subconscious. Like we're not actively actually working from that place. Yeah, I've, I've heard varying. So I've heard, this is what I love about, you know, data, data statistics will tell you any story you want. Depends how, what the, you know, initial hypothesis was and how easy it is to, doing it, creating unbiased experiments and all the rest of it. I mean, that's why science is wonderful, right? It's, it's just, it's black and white, but not at the same time. Where, where I've heard the most sort of at land is about 43 to 47% of our lives we repeat every day. I mean, and that's just behavioral repetition. And it's about 95% of our thoughts that are repeated every day. Yeah, I've heard that one as well. You know, and, and when we start to look, when we look at that, you know, that's part of, people understanding what's going on and they have this what moment and then you know it's like well we're going to find out soon because it's not only are they repeated in our own minds but they are common and repeated across the collective consciousness mm. in terms of across other minds you know when when we create a space where we can begin to uh, explore the nature of our self-talk from a place of that curious inquirer 
rather than the the victim or the the critical judge the persecutor mm. yeah all of that i mean i love drama Cartman's drama triangles amazing and i'm it's a all, good one yeah emerald's empowerment dynamic which is the flip side of it Ooh. is is um write that gold. Down. yes i recommend i recommend that it's because it's a critical part of how human beings work because of the nature of being social animals and wired for survival being noticed threats and deal with them and you know a lot of our threats come from other people that that's the way modern society is you know the old saber-toothed tiger analogies to had its day it's actually not about tigers it's about other humans mm-hmm. that that's and that's been the way it's been for millions of years for human beings right so this um space that people can get to of just going like hmm isn't that interesting? The stuff's just happening. Like that—that's a really big idea for people to get. It's like you're not actually doing the thinking. There's usually a moment of silence at that point. It's like, what do you mean? It's like, yeah, but it's me though. But it's <laughs> me. It's like, well, it's your your brain slash mind is generating these thoughts. Absolutely, like a perpetual motion machine. You know, it's busy. It's got a job. It's got a it's got a very important job to do, it's and that's keep is, you alive. It's got a lot of lot of things that it needs to be doing every day. And this is the thing: it is geared around keeping you alive. So you know, worry is a is a survival technique. It is uh, I'm looking at all of the possible things that could go wrong, and I am working out all of the ways in which they could go wrong, and trying to scenario manage them. Right? We we are exhausting, here. exhausting. Right? And so this is, and we've created a world. I talk about the fact that we are we are living in a world made by us but not for us. Mm. These beautiful, sophisticated brains, which haven't changed for millennia. You know, I mean, modern humans have been knocking around. Depends which anthropologist you talk to, but it's they say three hundred thousand years, and as a version of ourselves with culture and language and you know society and all of this kind of thing for at least 50,000 and you, you think about how much the world has changed in the last 200 years even the last 50 years the like last even 50 in, years. even in my lifetime mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the last 34 years we went from i didn't have a cell phone until i was god i don't even know like 15 and it was it was like a screen that was like this big it cost you 20 cents a text. You only had $20, you know, you didn't have, and you know, and now kids today are like getting phones at five years old so that they have contact with their parents at school and life is just, that's life now. And that's just in the last 30 years. And I'm like, oh, there's so much to this conversation, Tash. Oh yeah, no, we could go, so we many could go layers. <laughs> there are so many layers because I'm like, why does a five-year-old need a phone to get in contact with their parents at school? you know what is it that we believe about the world about the education system about other children etc that means we are putting a device which is training children's brains uh, in unhelpful ways into their hands at that age when all the research now is saying they shouldn't get it till they're at high school definitely nothing that's the smartphone you know but all of these things because it's happening it's happening so fast we are you know, we we have still have Stone Age bodies and brains in lots of ways. We and do not know how to cope with the world that we have created. Exactly, we don't. And, and I'm um, this is where you know my work around this the the fully human stuff 
everything to do with that in terms of our approach to life and leadership came from the belief that, you know, and this was 15 years ago, at the time saying the next 30 years is, are going to be the most important in human history. And I don't think we are the people who can lead through it yet. And that take leading through it means we have to get back in touch with actually we have to understand our humanity and how our brains wired, how we're socially driven, all of these things so that we can be not at the effect of it, but we can consciously and deliberately work with it so that we can be our healthiest, happiest, most high functioning selves in what is going to be, you know, turbulent and very challenging times on a whole lot of fronts. You know, we're looking ahead over the next 25 years now and everything that's happening in the world. I think, you know, we have the potential to, to have the best of times ever, but only if we can keep our shit together. If people were freaked out by COVID and the change that that meant and are getting freaked out about AI, you ain't seen nothing yet, you know. We're only at the start of this, yeah. yeah. And it's not a dystopian reality thing at all. I think there's a, there's a, because of the way our brains are wired around threat and worry, it's really easy to go there. And I think there are really cool, I'm hoping, great partnerships that we can create with technology, ways that we can solve some of our wicked problems together with technology. That means, you know, we can deal with rapidly declining population, climate, you know, technology. How do we feed ourselves, move ourselves around the planet, stay healthy, live well, um, and not kill each other mm. all the time? Well, that's that's a whole conversation. <laughs> that's, that's a whole, a whole conversation. conversation. Yeah. So the self-talk piece is where it kind of starts. So it's this relationship with myself. How can I better lead myself? How can I deal with the mental stresses and strains? How can I make more conscious and deliberate choices about where I put my time, energy, and attention rather than be at the effect of my thinking in the negative self-talk that might mean I behave in certain ways or make certain choices that aren't necessarily good for me, aren't good for my team, my business, my family, my community, you know, because wherever you, John Kabat-Zinn's fabulous book, wherever you go, there you are. Mm -hmm. um, you are always with you. And our, our ability to show up individually and collectively in, in powerful and profound ways is is what matters most. And that means showing up for ourselves first. Mm. Yeah, that was something my uh, now husband said to me five years ago. I wanted to leave a job and I was like, everything will change when I leave this job, everything will change. Like, you know, I'll, and he was like, yes, but you will go with you. So what, what about the situation is you and your mind and what situation, what about the situation is the job or the company? Mm. And that was not the answer I wanted. That is not the coaching moment I needed. Well, that I wanted definitely the one I needed, but it, you know, and we can maybe talk about that a little bit, but I love that you brought this back around. Like it all starts with self-talk, you know, is what I'm saying, doing, choosing supportive for me, healthy for me? I, I try not to use good or bad, right or wrong, because I, mm. I don't believe that anything is good or bad, right or wrong, because what's good or bad for you isn't necessarily what's good or bad for me. So what's helpful and supportive or unhelpful, unsupportive. So kind of grounding back into that self-talk piece, like how, what would be some signs or some signals or some flags that listeners 
would maybe be able to notice or pay attention to that maybe their self-talk is impacting their ability to be confident or move forward or make those supportive healthy courageous decisions for themselves like what would be some things that people can just bring into their radar to pay attention to of like oh maybe something is a little bit off here yeah what do I need to notice or see first thing I recommend to people and it's the baseline of all of the ways that you do anything around unlocking you know the, the potential and the power in this in self-talk is that you've got to have a conversation with yourself on paper and I, I've just come out of a, a two-day workshop on this and the number of people who say, oh, I'm a journal, I'm a journaling skeptic and I've tried it before <laughs> and I don't have the time and blah, 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 blah. And by the end of it, they're like, oh, wow. And you have plenty of time to do all this talking with yourself. <laughs> yeah, you're doing it. You're doing it all the time, right? And so this is the beginning. I mean, the beginning of any change and building a platform for change because people want to be transformed they want things to be different but they don't want to have to do the work and that is the bad news team it's like you're in suffering with the shitty self-talk or the lack of progress or the feelings about your body or relationships or families sibling rivalries or whatever the hell you've got going on because it basically all comes down to situations and relationships it's one of the mm -hmm. first things i get people to do is say if this is about um, your brain trying to keep you safe and secure and get those baseline securities of safety, connection, and self-esteem. I'm worthy, I'm valued, I have my place in this group, et cetera. Met. What are the relationships and situations where you know you get some negative self-talk fired up, where you start having a meh, 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 meh in your own mind? And honestly, it's like, take three minutes to think of a few. Instantly. Mm -hmm. They've got, oh, it's this relationship, it's in, the, in this meeting, my boss, my partner, my my daughter's boyfriend, whatever the things might be. I, I know I get negative. It's like, right, you don't have, to, don't have to work very hard to identify there are some relationships and, and situations and contexts where your brain is going, danger Will Robinson, and sparking up some stuff to get your attention. So you say, you know, to either keep yourself or if you're a parent, your children and the people most close to you safe because you have self-talk, not just about yourself, but about them once you get your family expands. Mm -hmm. So it's just notice a little bit. Like I would say to listeners, um, ask yourself that question. In my current recent experience, current or recent, or when I anticipate the next 24 to 48 hours and I put my attention on people and situations, is there anything where I have a felt sense? So there's an emotional. Yeah, like that tension or that anxiousness yep. or that pit yep. in the stomach. Exactly. Mm. There is a felt sense around sort of that fear, anxiety, whatever that comes up. And then I know that I get some, I get some thoughts arising, which are unhelpful. I talk about useful and un, um, useful and not useful rather than true. Because mm. I think what debating, is truth? debating truth yeah. around these things is pointless, right? And even shitty thoughts can be useful if we frame them in the right way. So I get them to do that. Just like look at your immediate, recent, close future context and think about people and, and places and times and, and, and see what comes up. People always have some. And then it's like, so what are those thoughts? And three minutes 
writing it down on paper, you'll be amazed. Say to people, three minutes okay, is not enough. And I, I know, hear, no. I've, I've seen you talk about this in your workshops. You're like, people are like, wait, wait, I'm not done. I'm not done. <laughs> the people who are going like, I got nothing to say, and then three minutes in, they're like, what? You know, and and um, it's it, this is the thing. I think you know, we we just have to spend time with ourselves in different ways. We're so busy. We live in the mind. We kind of forget we are a body. We talk about our body like it's a thing that we have rather than what we are. And, and we live in the mind and we live in a tiny box in the mind. We don't even live in the space in the mind of all that's possible. We live in this little container that we've created out of these, uh, what are effectively limiting beliefs that keep us safe. The reason they're limiting is they prevent whatever twisted way because you look at some of them you go I don't know how this one's keeping me safe and it's like well let's think a bit harder if you believe this what does this mean doesn't happen yeah oh it means I don't start the business I don't I don't risk my life savings on this decision you know oh yeah there's you pull on the thread oh it unravels it doesn't you know and and so there's this thing you know working on this you come into this world with you you go out of it with you in that moment um, and you are the only one present to everything you think, feel, say out loud and in your head and do, right? You are the closest relationship that you have with anybody through life and yet we don't necessarily see it like that. We don't invest in it in that way. We, we mm. don't speak to ourselves the way we speak to um you know, the people who matter most to us. And that doesn't mean it's always a loving. I mean, you can have really good, strong, challenging, healthy, all healthy relationships know how to do conflict. That includes the relationship you have with yourself. Mm -hmm. How do I have a healthy, challenging conversation with myself about something? Not a, not a beat up session. You know, you wouldn't give feedback. (laughs) uh, You wouldn't speak to your husband. Um, and the way you speak to yourself sometimes it's mm-hmm. like you think more consciously about how it's going to land and what you really want and the impact it's like well can we be that thoughtful with ourselves mm. yeah and I mean this is this is possibly like the hardest action to take right like unless you're in a workshop and someone's forcing you to do it like the facilitators like standing there being like I, I don't see you writing Let's, let's let's get a move on every everybody writes <laughs> everybody <laughs> but you know but there's the initial like i don't have like my brain's fine i don't have anything um but this is like the hardest action yet as you say like it it's the foundation for any change like we have to know what is happening hmm. in order for us to know what is changing or what we want to change right but you know one of the questions i actually had for you was like you know how is the life that we live now, the time that we're in making, like impacting our, our self-talk. And you've already spoken about it already and and what you've shared so far. But I guess like the fundamental part is we don't actually have space unless we create space now. Correct. You know, I was I was just thinking like I watch Jake, you know, I watch him playing and I'm like, how does he find that empty juice bottle so fascinating? Like it's nothing. Like, and he's shaking it around and he's like looking at it and he's like, you know, squeezing it, he's making sounds. But like he's in that moment, he's he's doing something, but he's not being, you know, there's not there's no input, there's no consuming of someone else's idea or anything 
you know, at that time. And I was just thinking about, you know, how this relates to that self-talk is like, we are addicted to consumption. We're addicted to busyness. Like, I hate the word busy. Like, but we're so addicted to, we're addicted to stress. Like we're addicted to be stressed out because that's just the normal way of feeling now. But all of that stops us from having the ability to have a conversation with ourselves unless we actively sit down and go, what is my brain doing? Mm. What is my brain saying? We are addicted to distraction. And this, uh, I mean, addicted is not too strong a word in terms of what we feed both our minds and bodies. Now we've, on both fronts, we have, although different in different mediums, be it, um, you know, social media and all of the information online. And with social media, I also include things like YouTube and all the rest of it and just mindlessly wandering the web. You know, you have ultra processed food for your mind and we feed our bodies the same. You know, it's changed for every real food that you could consume there is an ultra processed equivalent and it's the same in terms of our minds instead of reading a real book away from a screen i don't care how good your kindle is <laughs> you know and instead of just sitting with a cup of tea for five or ten minutes and i mean i, I did it in a cafe um yesterday in wellington before the workshop i mean i got myself a cup of tea and i deliberately when i go and do things like that i don't take my phone with me you know, I'm on my own in a town that's not. Gosh, home. everyone must have been like, "Yeah, Who are that weirdo." Like, what and is I'm she sitting doing? There, that's so and weird. I'm just looking around, and I'm looking around the cafe, and I'm looking out the windows, and I'm just, just breathing, and just noticing they have all these beautiful lanterns up in the ceiling, and noticing how the air conditioning blows them around, and the sounds of the cafe staff talking to each other, and what they're saying, and smell of the coffee machine and you know I'm just noticing that stuff and and I look around and I'm the only person who's not plugged into a device even people who are there with other people are looking at their phones and so we have these little moments always and it, it just starts with moments you know of of choice because the way with we're a part of the attention economy our devices including our work devices. So I don't want people to think this is just all about our personal stuff and our personal use of social media and stuff like that. This is absolutely about the way we work now as well. Back-to-back -back teams meetings, the rise and grind, all of that that started during COVID. Like it all got accelerated during COVID and it hasn't stopped. And people are in the most incredibly unhealthy ways of working now, all in the name of you know, activity-based working and remote working and stuff like that. And I see it in all of, with all the leaders I work with. They are exhausted and there's no end in sight. And it's getting worse because of some of the ways, you know, that we're, we're beginning to evolve the way we work. And the belief, because it is a belief, that people must be connected all the time. Mm -hmm. So there's this habitual practice based on the way the brain works and dopamine and getting little hits and the fear of missing out. And there's also the people are afraid to be with their thoughts. But boredom actually has, boredom can actually be painful. Like we can have a felt experience yeah. of pain associated with boredom, which is why it's really, really good 
do it, to get bored, to not occupy yourself. You know, we have fear of missing out around missing something on a Slack channel or a meeting that we've been invited to or a, a feeling like that I can't prioritize time and space that I need because I must be available to other people. And I think that's a leadership story that's unhelpful, mm-hmm. particularly for women, um, where it's not just our work teams, but our home teams. You know, we, yeah, the mental load is spread across everything. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the increased what's called allostatic load in the last three and a half years, you know, in terms of total, goes beyond cognitive load and into total experiential load on the body is enormous. And we have to recognize that it's there, that doing a little bit of resilience training and well-being stuff and everything else isn't mm. going to fix it, and that we actually really have to help people to reset healthy boundaries and to cultivate healthful life and work practices because they are incapable of doing it for themselves for the most part. Absolutely. Yeah, it's like something I talk about where it's not it's not wholly the organization's responsibility. There is the responsibility for the individual. However, we're getting to a point now where it can't fully be done individually anymore without the organization making it mandatory that this is how we do things. But with capitalism, <laughs> let's see, let you know, let's let's hope that we recognize or that organizations I don't know how they just don't see this it's like you don't have a company unless your people are there doing the work why is it so at odds that you ensure that they get what they need that Mm. they take time that they have breaks that they actually have a line between these two aspects of their life you know that's one thing I just don't think I'll ever understand well and I think it's partly you know what it there is a, it's a shared responsibility. It's the way I see it, but I do. And this is one of the reasons way back in the day we started Blacksmith was about, you know, people, people have to go to work to make a living. We don't live in a hunter gatherer or even a agrarian society anymore. Right. We live in a in increasingly urban environments, you know, by inside the next 20 years, 25 years tops, 80% of the world's population are going to live in cities and kind wow. of like mega, mega cities. And for New Zealand, Auckland will be that, city you know what's happening with population decline etc means we will see even more attraction in rural and provincial areas we'll see what's happening in japan and italy already with you know ghost Mm. villages where people are there's just going to be empty houses everywhere not just because people are moving but because there aren't there aren't as many people you know we're going to have populations Mm. halve china's on an accelerated pathway to that so there are a whole lot of things around changing demographics that mean the way we live is going to change the way we work, the way organizations access and develop talent, where those people are, how they live, how they work. So much is going to change so quickly in the next 15-ish years. And this idea of just developing people like you're upgrading a machine Mm. with skills to do the job, hard technical skills to do a job. When we look at how in many job families, their job families are just going to disappear mm-hmm. or that are going to be radically altered by the um, AI as a partner in terms of how we do business. And then there are going to be a whole lot of jobs that are not going to change because they just still need humans. Right? 
when we look at how to develop people through the world that is, there is an increasing, like the opportunity is there right now to look seriously at how we help people to develop in these ways as human beings so that they can continue to be healthy, happy and high functioning Mm. in our work environments and world as they change. And when I look at a lot of, you know, the learning and development spend that gets done and the way that spending gets decided through RFP processes and stuff, we are still tinkering around the edges with stuff. You know, a whole lot of that will have to stay in place because human beings aren't like phones. We don't get system upgrades. It's not like AI, AI where we've got this machine learning across the whole thing and at night we all get upgraded and now know how to give feedback. No, <laughs> If only. <laughs> Every new manager has to go through the same stuff, right? So there's some stuff that's table state. But once people have got that table state stuff or, or while they're getting it, learning more about this whole being human thing and, and integrating that into the table state skill learning is really important or offering it to them, particularly once they're in charge of other humans in a work in a workplace mm. so that they understand more about the human to human interactions can better develop themselves around their capacity, not just their capability, but also yes. support that, you know, with others, the capacity to do the work, not just the skills. And the capacity, I would say, is the mindset and the energy, mm-hmm. right? It's like the mental capacity and this the self-talk, right? Like what is the narrative, the story, the beliefs, the all of all of those things. And then also what is my energetic capacity to actually be fully human to function to be my best to be at that highest level oh man everything you just said is just like my brain is worrying I'm like I just want to go into like a thousand different directions on all of that conversation and I think we're gonna have I think I'm just gonna have to do a series with you about all of the stuff (laughs) you know and how how we can create more fully human so that we don't end up in a dystopian post-apocalyptic world where everything implodes yeah my, my husband loved zombie apocalypse movies and he reckons that's and watching those is him bit his bit of getting ready for when it all goes tits up whereas i'm like well i'd rather work on it not going there uh yeah. if we can or at least living in a pocket where that's not true yeah 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 there's a lot to it right this is this beautiful complex emerging reality and yet inside it are these crazy Stone Age in lots of ways and creatures running around mm-hmm. making it happen and trying to deal with it. And we do ourselves a disservice if we don't recognize that kind of paradox, the weirdness of that, um, mm. and, and work out how to be and do better so that we're making it better, not just surviving what is. Yeah. Like that quote you said, like will always stick with me is we're creating a world creating a world by us but not for us like that will always kind of stick with me of and I think that that actually also can be a great powerful purpose question Mm. you know is what I'm doing helping us live in the world we are creating versus just advancing the world as it is Mm. yeah that is making it harder for us to actually live in um so I want to like bring this back because we've we've really taken this like really existentially almost philosophical (laughs) conversation which I love but really just want to end this with you know three three to five practical tips or strategies for listeners to really 
start harnessing their self-talk in a helpful and supportive way. So the first thing that I 1000% agree with that I'll reiterate here is starting that conversation with yourself on paper, like actually getting a journal or a notebook or even just a blank refill. Gosh, I can't remember the last time I said that refill pad and just ask over the next one minute or three minutes, what is happening in my brain? What is being said? What other strategies do you, do you have that think could be really helpful for people? Sure. So that absolutely everything Everything about the conversation with ourselves is better if we slow it down and have it on paper. So we can only write about 10 to 40 words per minute, depending on how practiced you are (laughs) and whether you write cursive or you delicately spell out every letter. But that's um, a massive downgrade in speed from the speed at which we can think or even listen to another person speaking, right? Hundreds of words less per minute. So, and if people are like, how do I even start? There are very simple, there's lots of stuff online. There are lots of great questions, et cetera, that you can go and start looking at as prompts for that. I've got a self-reflection guide as well that I'll pop into the show yeah. notes that people can use as a starting point. Yeah, and there are there are a lot of specific practices that you can do around that. But I recommend people start and start in the morning. I do it in the morning. It's like brushing your teeth, having a shower. It's just like download your mind, see what's there, set an intention. Willpower is at its highest in the morning. Another thing that I recommend people uh, do is disengage from their phones mm-hmm. because this just noticing more, being with the mind as it is without having to get into, I'm again, a big believer in meditation practice, et cetera. However, you don't need to go there just that mm-hmm. without distracting yourself and notice. You don't have to write it down. Even if you just sit for five minutes, every time you, if you're having a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, Instead of talking to other people or picking up your phone or reading something, just sit and notice what arises. If you want to write any of it down, great, do that. Uh, Another thing I would say is that if you are someone who is getting woken up by a busy brain in the middle of the night, write it out. Yes. Do not lie and there and and toss and turn. Don't try to solve the problems or anything like that. It's just um, so getting up out of bed, you know, that raises your heart rate, which might make it more difficult to get back to sleep in some ways. But if you have a journal by your bed, I even just keep a pad of post-it notes and a marker just so I can jot down ideas or key things that have got my brain busy. I just need to get it off. I call it the sushi train. It's just like this high rotate mm. thing with, you know, the plates keep coming around and round and round. To just get it out of your mind. If you have some elevated anxiety around it and you're in that worry space, um, I have a like a A5-sized journal and I will get up and I will write four pages of that. Now, you might think that sounds like a lot, but honestly, you'd be amazed how quickly it fills up. Once you start, yeah. Once you start. Mm. But what, what will happen is by the top to halfway through the fourth page, you can feel the shift. And yourself, mm. that anxiety and everything else, right? You, your mind is kind of because it's generally about the same time that cortisol's rising and melatonin is dropping off. You're more likely to be woken, and if you are have stress and anxiety and your sympathetic nervous system is a bit fired up, getting it, it being heard will calm it down. Mm. So it's like, okay, she got the message. We've said yeah. everything we needed to say. You know, you've you've thought it out, you've written it down. Most of it will be the same. It'll be bullshit when you read it back in the morning 
all the rest of it but it's just like, you don't even have to read it back like it's no. just something you did to clear it out and then you move yeah. on yeah if one of the other things i suppose the final thing i'd say is if people are concerned about writing it down like i had somebody in a workshop this week who was like mom i'm a very private person she barely acknowledged trying thoughts to herself in the beginning and by the end of it she's like i'm a complete convert i'm gonna write this down but part of it was i said yeah further to your refill thing write an a4 page and then rip it up i'm a big fan of burning personally yeah i I, I I was just about to say i'm a burner too (laughs) i'm a i'm a burner but um if you're concerned that someone in your home might read it and you're not ready for you don't i mean my experience is nobody will and if you have some relationships in your home where that is something to be concerned about and you're not having a conversation a about it, conversation. then that's a boundary conversation. <laughs> However, if if you just want to make a start and experiment, then write an A4 page of refill and uh, rip it up. I love these. The point is mm. just get into the practice like, and recognize it's not a, you're not create, you're not engaging in creative writing. You're not writing a book. No, You're just downloading it's unedited writing, whatever is in your mind, mm. right? And then once you get some of these basics underway to create a little bit of space, there are lots of really cool because I think about it and I very much frame it as a self coaching relationship. Mm-hmm. But self coaching mm-hmm. is tricky, coaching other humans is tricky. So there are then lots of techniques that you can use beyond that to level things up once you've begun to just be present to your own thoughts create the space for short times of writing them down and and get comfortable with that practice. Yeah. Mm. I think something that's really important to say here is you need to actually have this as something that you do to some extent that is that is consistent and comfortable. It's not always going to be comfortable because like reliving some of what's actually like actually writing it down and seeing it like oh my god is that what I'm saying to myself isn't sometimes going to be comfortable but there needs to be an element of this practice being part of what you do before going into the next stage of coaching and how do I change it and how do I make it better because I think sometimes this can be the disillusion with self-improvement if it's just we're almost addicted to constantly self-improving versus do we actually just know where we are do we know where we are are we spending time being more aware of that loving it Mm. not you know accepting it so it doesn't become a shadow part of ourselves before we then want to change it that's something that I work on with my clients is okay let's just get really present with where we are before we start to really jump into the constantly trying to change Um, and that's something I'm always because because I'm a coach I just immediately want to self-coach it's like well how can I just fix this how can I just change it I was like wait what is it that I actually need from this first what is it that I need to know before I then move into that next stage. So bringing this into a consistent part of the practice. And I really love that you make such an emphasis on writing because this is something that I know for sure. It's the energetic, it's the energetic transfer, I find. Like there is an actual physical transfer of energy out of the brain onto the page. And that's why writing is so powerful because it's it's giving it somewhere to go Hmm. versus somewhere sometimes I find like when I just talk, I'm like, where is that going though? I don't Mm. fully know. And sometimes when you talk it out, someone's trying to hit solutions back at you and you're like, yeah, but that's not where I am right now. Whereas the page isn't going to do that. (laughs) You know, it's somewhere for it to safely go and be released. Mm. And yeah, I agree. Ripping it up, burning it. I'm all about burning too. Again, that energetic practice of that is really powerful. 
but I really, really love these. These are yeah. so, so powerful. I think the, the thing I would also say is I know, you know, we've been talking about the negative self-talk and it's important to start there. I think that starting with affirmations piece, particularly affirmations other people have created, is like wallpapering over the cracks. Yes. But for people to be prepared to be amazed about how quickly you can change the conversation with yourself when you actually listen and you actively and with positive intent as a curious inquirer, as a best mate, as a loving partner in life, when you enter the conversation from that space, how quickly it can become this really interesting, powerful peacemaking, mm. idea-generating, momentum-filled relationship, you know, and, and it is going to have seasons and good days and bad days. And But I think the thing is getting into this conversation with yourself, instead of it's good days and bad days, it comes down to moments. Yeah. Like how quickly you mm. can notice things and turn things around. And um, Bob Sharples, who's an Australian meditation teacher, has this wonderful quote further to your point about um, self-improvement. And that is to beware the subtle aggression of self-improvement. And I think there is this idea that if we're going to be better, somehow we have to be bad and imperfect and wanting. And therefore we kind of, you know, I, I, there used to be this thing when I was into bodybuilding years ago, you know, the body is evil and must be punished. It's kind of mm -hmm. don't 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 have that approach to your body to your mind. It's like you wouldn't speak that way to your child who's growing and developing and becoming themselves. Don't don't have that attitude with yourself. Treat it as not something that's kind of win lose pass fail good bad, but something that's just it's a an adventure. Yeah, it's evolving. It's changing as you are. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And that's what I also say to clients is like, there is no there that we're trying to get to with no. the mind. Like there is no end point of like, oh, my mind is fixed. And it's like all happy, joy, joy. It's like, no, because you're still here experiencing humanness, which means that there is the ups and downs, the, the you know, all of those things, because that is the human experience. And that is what we're here to experience. And um, yeah, and I, you know, I say that with mindset work as well, it's, it's a practice every day hmm. you know and as you do it as you as you continue to practice as you refine that practice the lulls become shorter like as you were saying like the the distance from noticing to shifting becomes smaller and smaller and smaller the more that we hone like refine the practice but that's still going to happen those moments are still going to happen but you might start with three days like I always say you know, I I can spiral in shame and guilt for weeks like that is you know if we talk about um Brene Brown like that's my shield like I'm like hardcore shield against and shield away like I'll run away or I'll fight and I can go for weeks and weeks but now I'm at the point where like it's maybe an hour maybe half an hour like I'm not there because there is no there no but it's so much better and it still happens because I'm human and I'm still being triggered and, you know, still working through my childhood stuff, all of that. But the practice of me being able to shift from where I am to where I know I want to be and how I want to feel and how I want to be thinking about something, it's faster. And that's what we're aiming for. It's how can we reduce the time and the space versus how can we get rid of the event? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we we're prepared to we seemingly are prepared to suffer 
to improve and suffering is just part of life. And, and when I say suffer, it doesn't mean like talking about mild discomfort and not necessarily like, you know, incredible existential angst. But we seem to be prepared to do it to improve our bodies, our fitness, but to mm-hmm. get that beach ready body. Not that I agree with all of that bullshit either, by the way. I think there are um, other things to have ambitions for when it comes to our well being, you know, increasing our health span. We live in a world where it's we almost don't want to get uncomfortable. Like everything, mm-hmm. our needs are all catered for. We can buy the same food all year round, live in air conditioned comfort, distract ourselves anytime. But we will suffer to go to the gym or to feel like we look better. How about a little bit of discomfort to improve your mind and mm-hmm. your relationship with yourself? I mean, I, I talk with people and I think particularly in midlife, this is becoming, as you pass the midway point, you become much more aware of the um, your own mortality mm. and, and the limits on life. And I think therefore there is a, I love having a conversation with people about the fact that not just to kind of this touching on it going, you know, we're not here forever kind of thing, but actually saying, when are you going to die? Like, what's your number? What's mm. your what's your marginal decade? How long do you think you're going to live? Because we need to get real about mm. the fact we are not here forever. So don't waste any more of your life caught up in this shitty self-talk, this poor relationship with yourself. And because of that, limiting your potential for joy, mm. for for impact, for adventure, for exploration, love, you know, purpose. Don't let these entrained thought patterns, you know, this buggy system, be the thing that limits what you can do with what's left of your life because there is only so much of it left. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we don't want to be morbid, but it's the truth. Well, it's, <laughs> it's not reality. I, it's yeah, not morbid. It's, I think it's no. it's something we don't do enough. Like we're shielded from death in our society in lots of ways. And there is a stoic mm. stoic um, philosophy tenant that I like, which is memento mori, which means remember you will die. And it just means it's not about it being maudlin or morbid. It's just putting your attention, just letting your attention rest on it and go, one day I will stop. All the people... And things I love will stop. And I don't know when that day will be. So how will I live today? Mm, love that. You it's know, really powerful. Yeah. So I think it's, um, this is it, guys. We've got one go around, at least that we're aware of in this incarnation, this, this soul, whatever your particular belief system is. So why wouldn't you try and make it the best one you can? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you're working yourself to the ground for work anyway, so why not work yourself in benefit of yourself? That's what I think. <laughs> um, this has been so amazing. Thank you so much, Kate. Like there's a billion conversations we could have had here, so I definitely think we'll be having more. So thank you again so much. I've got three quick fire questions that I ask all my guests mm-hmm. just to finish off. What is your number one energy filling practice you do consistently? Uh, that would be walking in nature mm-hmm. anywhere I can, especially if it's by water, but uh, walking outside no matter the weather. Love that. What is one mindset reminder you focus on to boost your confidence? Uh, I have a little thing I say to myself that is everything is always working out. Yes, it is. 
even yeah. if you think you get a no or a rejection, it's to redirecting you to the next thing. Yeah, I love that one. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And what's one boundary that you uphold that supports you to be your best? Sleep. I am, uh, yeah, I have become rigorous. It's a flexible boundary because fixed boundaries are prone to breaking, but it's a mm-hmm. flexible boundary. But I have developed over the last few years sleep routine and everything that really works for me, which I'm the only one who can enforce about screens away, my weird red glasses on, mm-hmm. you know, in bed by a certain time, awake at a certain time, all of these things. But sleep is the foundation of everything. And so that those are my, uh, it's non-negotiable and yet flexible because we still have to kind of adapt to life. But yeah, that, that would be that everything's better when you've had a good night's sleep. Oh, 1000%. <laughs> <If> anything <laughs> of the last 14 months have told me, I can concur wholeheartedly on that. Um, amazing. Thank you so much, Kate. This has been absolutely amazing. If you had enjoyed this episode, please reach out to either Kate or myself to let us know. And where can listeners find you, Kate? Where can they best find you? Uh, easiest place at the moment will be on LinkedIn. So uh, just my name, Kate Billing. Um, if people are curious about executive development, they can look at blacksmith.co.nz. And dependent on when this comes out, katebilling.com may or may not be open. at that point but we'll talk more about that next time amazing amazing and we'll put all of those links in the show notes as well as referencing a couple of the books that you mentioned too if anyone is interested in getting those so thank you again kate and looking forward to having you back sometime in the future a pleasure to thanks for the invitation Thank you for listening to this episode of Lead With Less, the podcast for confident professionals with me, Tash Peterser. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe and take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. As a thank you, each month, one lucky reviewer will get a 45-minute one-to-one coaching session with me where you will get the tools and strategies to lead with less burnout, overwhelm, and self-doubt. And if you know anyone who could benefit from listening to the show, then please do share this with them and help me reach as many confident professionals as possible.